Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is Bill English, who is the Artistic Director of San Francisco Playhouse in San Francisco, and this is the third show in the current season. First, let's talk a little about Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Where did you first hear of it, and when you read the script originally, did it immediately jump out at you as something San Francisco Playhouse would do? Absolutely. I saw it at Playwrights Horizons in New York City. And I was just knocked out by it. I just thought it was a great American play, a play that had just huge scope and size, a panoramic journey to middle America, and just incredibly intelligent, brilliant, sort of snapshot of the intellectual Christian conservative movement. A friend of mine said to me, he said, this would be scary if it were a fantasy but it's really scary if these are real people, which they are. Oh, definitely. They're very real people. And I think one of the interesting things about them is we tend to, we in our little liberal bubble tend to lump all conservatives into one big bag. The great thing about this play is you see all five of them are totally different. The character of Teresa is the extremist activist. Because you were the director of this, when you were working with the actress, what kinds of questions did she ask you and seek out on her own to fully understand the character? Ash did a tremendous amount of research. She read everything she could find about, you know, that particular brand of Catholic conservative on the right. We also did did a ton of research dramaturgically on a lot of the philosophers and teachers and theologians that she quotes Ash. I think just in speaking with her about the whole process, she was very had a very difficult time embodying the points of view that Teresa espouses. So she generally was making substitutes of strong convictions that she holds and bringing that level of her own conviction to the words. The word substitution was the thing I heard her talk about. When you folks were doing the first table read, what was the initial reaction of the other actors to this? The actors all have been feeling very grateful for the opportunity to represent these people. You know, actors are kind of channelers, you know, channel other beings, other spirits. And I think that the actors felt really honored and challenged and grateful to have an opportunity to go so far from themselves and to humanize people who we in the left tend to demonize. It goes straight to the heart of what acting actually is and why people are drawn to acting. I think actors are just innately drawn to exploring the human psyche, you know, the human spirit in all of its magnitude. I mean, whether you're playing Oedipus, you know, or Willie Loman, you know, Caligula. Actors thrive on the more extreme 
human personalities. For you as director, what were the challenges outside of trying to get an understanding of this Catholic culture that actually my friend who went to a seminary found alien? Well, it would depend on the kind of seminary, I think, because there's a lot of brands in Catholicism. There's the Jesuits, you know, who were a whole brand unto themselves. There are three or four other different seminaries' approaches to Catholicism, and I think this one is a kind of a almost originalist look at the teachings of the Bible. Were there any specific challenges beyond the fact that, of course, we don't know these people personally? I mean, this play had many challenges. I think working with the staging of the play was challenging. Um, working with the role of the different characters. This is a play that I felt challenged by in terms of its structure because it had many chapters, and a lot of the chapters didn't reveal their essential through lines easily. So sometimes it just sounded like talk, and I would need to look, and the actors with me, we would need to look deeper for what the objectives the different actors had towards each other. Sometimes when, when plays involve a lot of debate, and I like to think that this play most closely resembles a play like a Shaw play, like Man and Superman or Major Barbara, where there are huge debates raging through the play. The challenge is to make it personal. In other words, yes, there's a lot of debate going on here, but one character is trying to change the other person or get the other person to believe what they believe or bring them over to their side. So working with the actors to find objectives which would make it dramatic, make debate dramatic, was one of the biggest challenges. I could see that, especially since the play is over two hours long without an intermission. You've got to do that on a regular basis. You've got to keep that audience interested. Yeah, and there were scenes which didn't seem to have a lot going on, too, but which we would discover were actually the, the the characters were actually sort of taking a break. You know, they would debate, 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 and then all of a sudden they would just start having fun, you know, and joking and kidding and shoving each other and laughing and drinking and just being kids, you know, just being old school chums, you know. And then there are also beats where it isn't so much about the theology or the politics. It's that there were some beats that were really just about a, a person feeling lost and not knowing how to write themselves. Susie DeMilano, what is her specific role again at SF Playhouse? Producing director, which is a combo title. Many of the people in Susie's role are known as the managing director, but because Susie has an artistic voice here, as well as a managing voice, we call her the producing director. And that's primarily because in addition to managing the business of the theater, she directs and acts. Susie, when I interviewed her a couple of years ago, told me about her conservative San Diego background. When she was working with you on the play and with the other actors, how much did her character or the other characters resonate for her in terms of the people that she knew as she was growing up? Her family background was conservative, and then she went to college at San Diego State. And and I think she, in, in the business program there, there was a, a conservative bent to it. So she came out of college, I think, with some fairly conservative points of view towards 
politics and business in particularly. You'd have to talk to her really, but I think, yes, a lot of the elements in Gina, the character she plays, the college president, were points of view that she had encountered before in her life. And so it, she kind of understood Gina from a more, from a background of some of her, her experiences as a college student. When you walk away from this, do you think you or the people involved in the play, how do you change? How do you kind of assimilate that into your own views? Has it changed your position, let's say, on how you would look at an anti-vaxxer? It's probably changed some of my views towards conservatism as a general principle. I wouldn't necessarily associate a person who's anti-vaxxer with conservatism, you know? I would say that's kind of a thing unto itself. Now, those people might be conservative, but I know some anti-vaxxers who are liberals. You know, they just don't believe in vaccines. You know, Christian science people are anti-vaccination. But I think when it comes to just what conservatism really is, it definitely opened up some doors into understanding how people don't wish to be forced into a situation where the government is intruding on how they run their daily lives. The college in this particular play, fictional college, but based upon a real college where the playwright's parents actually teach, this college doesn't accept federal funding. Because, you know, with federal funding will come requirements like must provide birth control to students, must provide courses on family planning and such, you know, those kinds of things. They don't want to do that at the college, so they don't take the federal funding. Well, you know, it's all well and good. As long as they're not trying to inflict their views on other people, I do understand what some conservatives are after. They want to be allowed to raise their children in communities according to their standards without the requirements coming from the government that they conform to, you know, universal federal guidelines. I guess for me, when I'm listening, watching the play, what it says to me is they know about us, but we don't know about them. We tend to think of these people as kind of illiterate, crazy people, and it's obvious they're not. The play takes place in 2017 after Charlottesville, and this is before QAnon, this is before COVID, and this is, of course, long before the insurrection. And it struck me in watching this that if we're going to look toward the people who make decisions that will convince other people to do things or not do things, like, for instance, get vaccinated that they would get vaccinated, but they'd be more interested in winning the war than in saving lives. And I would think that, for instance, the character Teresa, who's a fanatic, I would think that if she looked at anti-vaxxers, her position would be, if it brings us more people into the fold, we'll do it, and they're martyrs to the revolution if they die. Oh, I don't know. You know, I think all political parties have to collaborate with people that they don't agree on every every topic. So for the conservatives, I think in in this case, it's that they're pro-life. And so they're willing to get into bed with people who they may not 
approve of in some respects because those people will vote pro-life. They're going to accept the votes of the anti-vaxxers and let the anti-vaxxers do what they like. Yeah, but they're also the same people who could very well be sending out the misinformation and disinformation in order to increase their numbers. Well, you know, sometimes alliances can be tough. What did Roosevelt say about Stalin? Here we were in World War II forming an alliance with, you know, a totalitarian dictator who was pretty much on a par with Mr. Hitler in a lot of ways. I I don't know whether Hitler or Stalin slaughtered more people. There were many, many people who were murdered by Stalin because of their religious beliefs or because of their racial makeup or because of their political views. I mean, you know, but yet, yet we had to ally ourselves with him to defeat Hitler. I don't think we necessarily can condemn people because of the alliances they make necessarily, unless we want to look our own selves in the eye. You know, while you were talking and while I was listening to you, I found myself thinking that these Catholic intellectual Christians, you may disagree with their points of view, but you you have to admire their adherence to their own ethical standards. You know, they create standards and they, they stick to their guns. These people may have been the salvation of, our, of the election in 2020. Where is Liz Cheney from? She's from Wyoming, you know, and, 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 and Pence, who was the man standing between Trump and an overthrow of the government. He's a religious conservative from Indiana. And Brad Raffelsberg, you know, the Secretary of State in Atlanta, who, when, when told to go find votes for Trump, told Trump to shove it. The conservatives that were on the Wisconsin board of electors who when called to you know called to washington and leaned on and threatened and intimidated humiliated just said no this is the law it just says that that's what i have to do and so i'm just going to follow the law i'm sorry these are electors that are going into the biden camp i think there's probably a pretty good book if you look at all of the sort of ordinary conservative americans that got in the way of what he was trying to pull. That's what I've discovered, for instance, about the Mormons, is that they stick to their beliefs, and when push comes to shove, they're not going to cave in, usually not going to cave in to the Trumps, which is why someone like Mitt Romney can get elected there. It's interesting. I disagree with a lot of the things that the people in this play represent. But I have this grudging respect for them as Americans. I mean, I come from that conservative prairie stock, Kansas conservatives, for sure. And it goes way back to, you know, it was all about autonomy. And I don't want the federal government coming in and tell me I can't grow corn on my land or I have to slaughter half my pigs. Bill English, what theater is trying to do, it elicits these kinds of responses. And I guess that makes this play from San Francisco Playhouse a success because we can keep talking about this the entire time. Exactly. I mean, I have to practice what I preach, and I I preach the empathy, Jim. And so I find myself going, well, you know, we, we can just preach to the choir all day in San Francisco, or we can get outside our box and take a journey to a 
a group of people with whom it might be a little more challenging for us to come up with some empathy. Bill English, we could continue talking about this, but I want to get to the other plays in this upcoming season. Water by the Spoonful uh, is by Chiara Allegra Juarez. That won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize. When did you become aware of it, and what brought it to your attention to do for San Francisco Playhouse? I also saw What About a Spoonful in New York City, you know, at the Second Stage Theater, and similarly knocked out by it, and just thought it was a brilliant piece about communication and support and mentorship and growth and change. But when we were going through the pandemic, and we were dealing with having to be in contact with so many people like you and I are now, you know, online, either through Zoom or phone calls or whatever, the play came back around to me because the support group that the characters in Water by the Spoonful build is all digital. And it goes from Japan to Los Angeles to New York City. And these people who are forming a really intrinsic and valuable support group for each other are thousands and thousands of miles apart. And so I thought, ah, how wonderful we humans can be that even through only being able to talk to somebody through some chat session who's, you know, 10,000 miles away, we can form connections that are essential to our survival our emotional and spiritual survival. So I thought that, you know, makes it sort of feel like the the play resonated in the world we find ourselves in now. It's a search for meaning by a returning Iraq vet. Is that kind of a broad outline at the play? Oh, that's just one, one aspect of it. One of the characters is coming back to the U.S. from Iraq, and he's been injured, and he, he's a wannabe actor you know, working in a subway store, making sandwiches and struggling to, yeah, make his life mean something. It's, but it's also about his sister who is, teaches courses in jazz at a university. His mother and his aunt who are recovering uh, substance abusers and the substance abusers in other cities and other places who are all working, I think, you know, our returning vet has substance issues because of the painkillers he was put on caused by his injury. I think the play is about how ingenious we humans can be in forming a support group outside of the normal small town manner, that we can reach out tens of thousands of miles for the support we need and build community globally. The next play is Paper Dreams of Harry Chen, and that's May 4th through June 18th. That's uh, about a Chinese man who forges papers to come to the United States. Where did you find that? Because I, I saw that several companies have produced the play. I think it's only been done once, actually. It's been done at a history theater up in Minneapolis. My associate artistic director, Mary Claire Erdnest, found it on a a list called the Kilroy List. It's put out every year, and there's an organization called the Kilroys, and they read and, and make a list of 
underproduced plays by newer female playwrights. So we go through the Kilroy list every year looking for new work because we want to feature the plays of women and we especially want to find out who are the new voices out there writing and what are they writing about. And we did another play we found on the Kilroy list called Hieroglyph last winter, Erica Dickerson Dispenza. So this is the second play within a year that we've pulled off that list and put into our season. And the theme of this one? It's a San Francisco story about an immigrant and how, how the process of being an immigrant is one of the toughest things you can do because you are uprooting yourself from the supportive culture in which you grew up, throwing yourself headlong into a completely foreign culture, and trying to somehow balance what you've brought to your life from the traditions with the demands of a completely different set of living circumstances. The final show of the season, Sondheim's Follies, which is my favorite Sondheim show. Oh, I'm so glad. Let's see, I saw it in San Jose. I saw it in Broadway. I saw it in London. Wow. The London production was stunning. I'm curious about something, though, which is that this requires an enormous cast. I think we've got it down to 18. We've doubled up a couple of characters and... I think we're going to do it with 18 people. So that's pretty good size, but it's not much bigger than this last show, Twelfth Night, had 16. You know, it's common for us to have 15, 16 actors. So a couple more isn't, isn't too big of a stretch. Are uh, you going to be doing the, um, the scenic design on that one? Yes, I have already done it. I did it two years ago. Because it was going to play. Yeah, the scenic design is all finished up and drafted and ready to build. In fact, we actually built part of it when the pandemic first struck and we were unsure about how long it would last or what we could or could not do, our scenic shop was looking for something to do. And we had already canceled a clean house and real women have curves. We hadn't canceled follies yet. We weren't sure what was going to be happening with follies. And we built a big electrified sign, which I'm looking at right now, which is uh, Love Land, which is, you know, of course, the play within a play. The second act is sort of the musical within a musical. And we got this big 28-foot long electric light bulb sign that blinks and flashes and says Love Land, and it will fly in from above. We're doing some scenic things we haven't done before, and I'm, I'm hoping people will enjoy the adventure. Are you planning to do the uh, intermission during the song of Who's That Woman like they've done in the past? The mirror song? Yeah, yeah. If I recall correctly, in one of the versions I saw, they do the mirror song, and then at the beginning of Act Two, they pick up with the mirror song. Well, I have to look into that because that's not the way it is in the script I have. There's a scene after the mirror song before the end of Act One. But I will check it out, Richard. I know that the original production and subsequent productions, they've chosen different places for the intermission. I don't remember what it was in London, though. I didn't see the London production. I've only seen the Bernadette Peters Jan Maxwell revival. Yeah, I saw that too. I thought Peters was the weakest part of the show. Uh, on the other hand, Melda Staunton 
was absolutely incredible in that role. I just think she played Sally as so bedraggled. And I think Sally's got a little more pizzazz. I sort of am thinking of Follies in the 21st century, you know, part of the Me Too generation, you know, where where Dimitri Wiseman is sort of like Harvey Weinstein. Also, um, Phyllis's husband is a pig. Ben. Yeah, he's a pig any way you shake it. To me, it's a profoundly feminist piece. For us now, as we look at these girls who were just raised to be nothing but Barbie doll eye candy, and then once your years of being Barbie doll eye candy are over, who are you? How do you build a real life? And how do you pick a partner, you know? How do you make those decisions? Because you haven't been raised to be anything but Barbie doll eye candy. I think that's a great understanding of the play. I never really looked at it that way. I think it's all in there. I'm planning to bring out that, that side of it more as much as I can just to make it feel like it resonates in 2022. You know, it's sort of a a wake-up call and a what kind of dance classes do you have your kids in? Well, I think that's one thing about great theater, and this will have to be the last question because you have to run. But one thing about great theater is you can take a great play and keep all the text, but as a director with the actors, make the play far more relevant, as relevant, let's say, to the time that it's being produced as it was when it was first written. Right. I know. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, in a, a classic like Follies, it's refreshing to to know that it can be reinvigorated with the current standards of understanding about male and female roles and, and, and still work, or work even better. You've been listening to an interview with Bill English, who's the artistic director of San Francisco Playhouse. Heroes of the Fourth Turning plays through March 5th. Then comes Water by the Spoonful, The Paper Dreams of Harry Chen, and the season concludes from June 30th to September 10th with Follies by Stephen Sondheim. For more information, you can go to sfplayhouse.org. I'm Richard Wolinski on the Bay Area Theater Podcast.